0: If I speak about the seven factors of enlightenment, the one that's at the uh, top and uh, always takes pride of place is mindfulness. And so I think it might be appropriate to talk about it because it concerns our everyday living. It does not concern any particular uh, situation. It doesn't concern having to go to a meditation course. It doesn't concern becoming a nun or monk or sitting in a cave. It doesn't concern anything except being wide awake. And so I think it might be a useful thing to discuss. And when I say discuss, I would like you to know right away that um, I appreciate it if you ask me questions after I finish talking. I appreciate it very much because, first of all, it gives me the idea that you have listened. And secondly, it also gives me the idea that you are interested and that we can discuss something together, that it isn't just me talking at you, but that I'm talking with you. And I prefer that greatly, and um, wherever I go, I try to induce people to talk with me, and I sort of fail quite often also. It doesn't happen, and particularly in Asia, of course, because it's an unknown thing in Asia. It's not the done thing. But in the West, by golly, we, we're we all talking all the time, aren't we? So it shouldn't be un- unknown here. So after I've said what my, my piece, What I want to say, please see whether you have something to add to it, subtract from it, argue about it, discuss, question, and so forth. The Buddha said about mindfulness this thing. He said, the one and only way for the purification of beings, for the reduction of Dukkha, for the final elimination of all pain, grief and lamentation, for entering the noble path, for realizing Nibbana, is mindfulness. Now, mindfulness, therefore, from this statement, takes pride of place. And you can easily understand that if you look at it and see what it means. It means being completely attentive but not being completely attentive at certain times for certain things which are interesting or are um, uh, useful for one or they are profitable in some manner or form but attentive at all times. We also said that um, if one is fully mindful only for seven days one can become enlightened now all of us who've heard from about mindfulness for years on end and have practiced for years on end must say with um, regret that obviously our mindfulness isn't up to par because otherwise we'd long be enlightened if it can be done in seven days. So there is a difference between just being attentive and real mindfulness. But in order to get to this real mindfulness, we have to start somewhere. And we have to realize the benefit of it. Now, mindfulness is an attitude of the mind which doesn't have any value judgment in it. It is knowing only. It is knowing exactly. And primarily, it is directed towards oneself. That's its primary target. Because the Buddha also said, the whole of the universe, all oh monks, lies in this fathom-long body and mind, in this one, one body and mind. So if the primary target is oneself, one gets to know the whole universe. The reason for that is, it's not an arbitrary statement, it is a a reasoned statement. The reason for that is that we, each one, and the universe, have exactly the same characteristics and are made out of the same uh, elements. So we are physically and mentally the same. Now, in order to gain that understanding and get to that and use our mindfulness for that, we have to, of course, not do it in uh, fits and starts, but have to use the mind in in a way which keeps it going. It's difficult. It sounds very simple to say, now come on, just be mindful. And sometimes I've heard people say somebody lets a cup fall or forgets their car keys and somebody yells out, oh, why aren't, you, why aren't you mindful? Well, it isn't just so easy like that. The mindfulness which is the, the characteristic in us is an objectivity. Towards ourselves, which most of us don't have, an objectivity of watching ourselves as if we were a spectator, a spectator of that what's happening. Now, most people who and everybody who hasn't practiced certainly hasn't got that objectivity. We are the subject and we are totally subjective towards ourselves. That's me. And I'm thinking, and I'm doing, and I'm acting, and I'm reacting, and nobody really knows exactly why. But if we start being a little more objective, that means taking a step back from ourselves. Not being so totally involved, and not so totally identified. And of course, if we meditate, we have already experienced that we can change our mind at will. We don't have to think in the same old pattern. We can change our mind from being totally distracted to watching the breath, even if it only takes a minute and then we get distracted again. It can be done. So that is already a stepping back, taking a step back, and not going along with what is happening. This is what we need to do towards ourselves, taking a step back and watching ourselves how we are feeling, thinking, and (coughs) reacting. The first thing that we can do with mindfulness and how we can practice it is with the body. Now, the body is, in a way, the simplest uh, practice path. We can see it and we can touch it. So that gives us a great advantage because to see something and be able to touch something already helps to make it real. Now we can't see our feelings and we can't touch them and we can't see our thoughts and we can't touch them, so that makes it more difficult. Now here we have something that can be seen and touched. And also it is, the body is are always making demands upon us. It's either hungry or thirsty or sleepy or it has an ache or a pain and needs to be looked after, or it wants to have a a little more comfort. There's always something that it wants. It's very rarely that it leaves us alone entirely. So there, if we take an objective stance towards that body, we don't even have to comply with all those demands. We can see the demand and say, no, not necessary. So, if we want to be mindful with our, to, towards our body, using the body as our foundation, we are primarily concerned with the actions of the body. And when we watch the actions of the body without anything else, we naturally are far less disturbed, anxious, fearful, We haven't got all the negative emotions at that time because we can only do one thing at a time with our mind. We are either mindful or we can be distracted or anxious or fearful or jealous or worried, but we can't do both at the same time. And that is the purification process because we do one thing we cannot have the negativity it's as simple as that so the more often we are mindful the more often we're purifying ourselves and purification is the secret of the spiritual path the spiritual path does not have exalted moments it has a slowly um, Step by step, often interrupted purification process. And the purification of mind and heart brings with it the clarity and the lack of greed and hate, which in the in the end brings the lack, the complete letting go of all dukkha. So if we're watching the body action, that means, as it is beautifully described in a little book called The Miracle of Being Awake, it's described as washing dishes while washing dishes. Now, washing dishes while washing dishes is sounds very simple, doesn't it? But if you can remember the last time you've washed dishes, what happened? Most people either think, I wish I was finished, or um, what am I going to make for dinner, or why haven't the children come home from school yet? I have to make that phone call. I will buy a dishwasher. It's um, the water isn't hot enough. All sorts of ideas except washing dishes. It's a boring and um, monotonous, the physical action And so most people try to entertain themselves by thinking about something else and never realize that that's what they're doing. But washing dishes, while washing dishes means, being attentive to the movement of the hand, to the movement as it washes, to the movement as it puts the dish aside, to the movement as it brings out another one. That is the... Washing dishes while washing dishes. And if you would like to try it, you will realize immediately that it's extremely calming and soothing because one cannot be worried or hopeful, um, uneasy, uh, anxious about anything while one is paying attention to what one's doing with one's hands. One does break less dishes, but that may not be so important in an affluent society. By the same token as washing dishes while washing dishes, this works for everything else we do. Walking from the house to the shop. While walking along the sidewalk from the house to the corner shop, the mind goes berserk trying to figure out what to buy. And trying to maybe also figure out whether it's going to be available and what to do if it isn't. And worrying about getting back in time because somebody else was going to come. All totally unnecessary because there's nothing one can do about it. Walking to the shop while walking. Not walking meditation, not going necessarily very slow, but watching the steps it's extremely soothing but it's more than that it's purifying but it's also preparation for meditation as i said earlier today some of you may have heard it we cannot expect our mind which is concerned with all sorts of worries and ideas and uh, likes and dislikes, and thinks constantly to sit down on this pillow and become concentrated. Why should it? It's been doing this thinking and reacting, judging, liking and disliking, evaluating for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, day in and day out. Why should it get concentrated when it sits down on a pillow? It's the same mind. There's absolutely no reason for doing it. And people are often surprised that they can't meditate. I'm far more surprised when somebody comes and can do it. Delighted too, but surprised. If we really want to meditate, then we have to give our mind a chance to get into a less excited and um, worked up state during the day now the excitement that's in the mind is its constant thinking so if we practice mindfulness then the mind is already used to being introverted and meditation needs an introverted mind that doesn't mean that we're going to become an introvert it just means that we are now on the way of discovering what is actually happening within ourselves and by doing that by that discovery we're also able to be so calmed down that we can concentrate in the meditation so no matter what happens physically if it is appropriate we can put our attention on it and keep it there because all the things that we are thinking about at that same time are totally unnecessary. They can't be taken care of anyway. But if we now would like to make some plans or think about something, all right then, sit down and think about it and become aware of the fact that we're thinking. And become aware of the fact that we're thinking means that we're stepping back from it, do not identify with it, but just realize that there's a thinking process going on, which means that we are far less identified with it, far less involved with it, and have, therefore, a chance to have a much clearer way of thinking, rather than believing that these thoughts are me and have to have a profit uh, margin for me. I must get something out of it. Most people are constantly concerned with getting something, whatever it may be. The only way to really get what one wants is to keep on letting go of this um, ego concern, this me concern, and see things more clearly. And then everything falls into place. So thinking is another possibility of putting our mindfulness and attention on And by stepping back and realizing now it's a thinking process, then we have a chance also to have an introspective attitude towards that thinking. And letting it happen, letting it go on, we also realize that it's very often neither rational nor logical that it is always, no, not always, but almost always, very much influenced by our feelings. And when we can see that, we can step back again and see whether we can separate our feelings from our thinking. This is a great difficulty that most people have, in fact, probably everybody has, that we do not distinguish between feeling and thinking. But mindfulness makes it possible because mindfulness has four foundations. First one is a body, which I've explained. Second one is feeling, third one is thinking, and fourth one is the content of the thought. We all live according to our feelings. Whether we know it or not doesn't make any difference. Because all our sense contacts produce feelings. And thinking is another sense contact. And it also produces feeling. So when we start thinking, we also start feeling. And instead of logical, rational thinking, we will react in our thinking process to the feeling which has arisen. That's why there's so much nonsensical and wrong thinking in the world. Constant reaction to feeling. And if we can distinguish between the two and keep our mindfulness, our real pinpointed attention on the thinking process, we will be able to think in a much clearer and better way. Now, the content of thinking, which is the fourth foundation of mindfulness, is our Realization whether the thoughts which we are thinking are wholesome or not. Now, we don't give it a value, we don't start blaming ourselves, we don't start um, judging ourselves if it's not wholesome, but we are realizing it's wholesome or unwholesome. Now, if we do this more often than not, obviously we will drop the unwholesome for the simple reason that they create unpleasant feelings and the wholesome creates pleasant feelings you can ascertain that quite easily in this particular moment if we get angry at anybody the anger that is within creates an unpleasant feeling within ourselves if we say or act with love towards somebody naturally there will be a pleasant feeling so if we become aware of being the creators, ourselves of these pleasant and unpleasant feelings we will naturally take steps to create the pleasant feelings and not the unpleasant ones and the unwholesome thinking will thereby be dropped So we have then seen, through our mindfulness, that it's never anybody else that's doing it to us. It's always us, ourselves. Now if we've come to that realization, we have taken a big step in um, self-improvement. Everybody is tempted to blame somebody else. We blame our parents, our partners, our children, the government, the Americans. Anybody gets blamed, doesn't matter who it is. But it really isn't anybody there to be blamed because we are exactly the same as everybody else and they are the same as we are. They're also not mindful. They're also thinking unwholesome thoughts. They're also reacting to their feelings they're all doing the same the same things that we're doing. So when we finally see this through mindfulness, that it is our own doing that creates either pleasant or unpleasant feelings, that we're the makers of our own happiness or unhappiness, then naturally we will change our attitude and become more watchful of ourselves. The attention on the feeling, mindfulness of feeling, may be the most important one of the four because as i said we live according to feeling now basically there are only three kinds of feelings pleasant unpleasant and neutral and we usually don't even know the neutral one but we consider it pleasant because at least it isn't unpleasant Mm -hmm. but we do know pleasant and unpleasant feelings those we know very well but we also give them names. We call the unpleasant ones pains, or pain, or anger, or worry and fear, and the pleasant ones we have love and compassion and so forth. Now to become aware of the feeling as such is the possibly the most important aspect of our mindfulness because this is where our reaction comes from, from the feeling. But just as we can in meditation detach ourselves from an unpleasant feeling let's say a knee hurts we can detach ourselves at least for some time and do not have to react to it so we can do that also in daily living if the mindfulness is strong enough we can know that there is a feeling but we do not have to jump in and immediately react to it now if we do that if we learn to stand back and just watch the feeling, we have broken the uh, constant repetition of our pre-programmed reactions. We are, we could say, like a pre-programmed computer. And if we don't see it one day, that there's always the same thing happening, that we constantly have the same printout happening, we don't see that it won't stop it keeps on going the pre-programming that we have is that we react to a pleasant feeling by wanting to keep it and having it again and we react to an unpleasant feeling by wanting to get rid of it and this particular reaction is so embedded in all human beings that we don't even realize that we're hurting ourselves with that. Everybody thinks, well, that's the way it has to be. What else? What else is there? But in reality, it is what makes us act as a reactor and not act as an actor. We're actually only reacting to a feeling which has been triggered by something, by some sense contact. That's all we're doing. Now, only with mindfulness can we become aware of that, and can we stop it. We do not have to react. If somebody is nasty to us, we do not have to become angry. There's an unpleasant feeling, but we don't have to be angry about this unpleasant feeling. We can wait till it disappears again. Or if somebody... uh, Makes us, uh, um, makes us angry in some way, we can watch that arising, but we do not have to identify with it. We can let it cease again. This is only possible if we're watching ourselves very carefully. It's only possible if we're using mindfulness, this self-watching, and when we lose the mindfulness, which everybody does, to realize that we've lost it. Now meditation teaches mindfulness but it can't do that unless we also help it along by using mindfulness in our daily life it has utilitarian purposes mindfulness if we don't forget anything if we do our work with mindfulness it's sufficient it's quick it's um, no bother to anyone it's not no hardship We do not become uh, tense or overworked, but we just keep on being mindful, watching everything. These are the utilitarian purposes. The uh, spiritual advantages are that we cannot have any defilements arising at the time of being mindful. And the ultimate advantages are that we do not have to react instinctively impulsively, but we can choose our reaction. Now, everybody likes to be a free agent, wants to have freedom, but in reality, we're nothing like it. This being pre-programmed to react in certain ways takes away all freedom. It's only when we choose how we're going to react that we have found a little bit of freedom. That choice only comes when we know the feeling and we choose whether we want to react to it or not. The feeling may be one of pleasant pleasure. If we choose to react to it by trying to renew it, that's our business. But instinctively, everybody reacts to that feeling of pleasure by wanting to keep it. And since we can't keep anything, there's never satisfaction. There's nothing that we can ever keep. Everything arises and ceases. And all our pleasant feelings which arise from sense contacts are necessarily short-lived because otherwise they would be very unpleasant. And being short-lived, we have to resurrect them. And having to resurrect them keeps us busy and uses up our energy so that there's nothing left for anything else. The mindfulness which has these advantages also goes a step further and eventually shows us what we really are. That we are two things first of all, mind and body. Now that sounds like a truism but most people are under the impression That the whole thing is one blob together but it isn't there's mind which is in charge and there's body that follows and most people are more concerned with body than they are with mind body naturally can be seen and touched and appears to be me but in reality it's nothing but utilitarian manifestation which we need in the human realm there are realms where it's not needed a body and it's much nicer there to meditate I should think because the body doesn't give any difficulties but here where we are we are constantly concerned with the body and do not pay attention to the fact that it's mind and body that there are two. Now with mindfulness we can see that even walking. That when the mind says stand still, the body will stand still. When the mind says walk, it will walk. But the body can't see anything like that. It's always the mind. So through the being mindful we get that first insight into ourselves, which is an important step. Because at that time when we realize that there is mind and that mind is in charge, It will be a next um, logical step to realize that the mind has to be looked after. And when we see how the mind operates, the next insight which we will gain will be arising and ceasing. We will see that everything that we think, everything that we feel, cannot be kept. It cannot be hung on to. It arises and it disappears and we cannot even remember. We cannot remember what we felt ten minutes ago. Never mind ten years ago. Just even ten minutes ago. We can't know what we felt. We don't even know usually what we're feeling right now. Never mind what we felt five minutes ago. So this particular aspect of ourselves that nothing can be hung on to, nothing can be said this is really now here that's where i'm at this is me although people try to describe themselves in all different terms and uh, ways if you use mindfulness you will see immediately that it is all coming and going coming and going and as we see that it's coming and going we become objective towards it we no longer Believe this so strongly that this is me. Because it is coming and going and coming and going. So how, which in which part of this coming and going of the thoughts, of the feelings, in which part of it is embedded the me? Now often people who have practiced will then say, well, I must be the one that's observing that. I must be the observer of it all. That must be me because obviously I can't be the thoughts that are coming and going and I can't be the feelings that are coming and going and I cannot be the body that is changing constantly so I must be the one that's observing. So when one has that as an idea and that many people have that that as an idea then one has to watch the observer and see whether this observer is constantly there. Naturally he's not because mindfulness disappears all the time. So where has the me disappeared to? Because observing is the mindfulness. So with that inquiry, we get a better idea of what the Buddha talked about when he talked about that the characteristics of existence are impermanence, non-satisfactoriness, and non-self. And that is the entering the noble path. The purification process is obvious. Not having any dukkha is obvious because we can't. We can't have two things at the same time. And entering the noble path is getting, coming to grips with the characteristics of existence. There is another aspect of mindfulness which is also very useful and I'll mention it right away. I've been talking about interior mindfulness. But there's also an aspect which is the or internal, external mindfulness. We can have mindfulness ab- about and t- uh, directed towards the happenings around us. But this has to be totally objective. When we see other people, we can have mindfulness and we can understand what their motivations are. But it's not a judgement making. It is only and trying to understand what motivates them how they operate how we are the same how we are so similar this is very helpful because it can act as a mirror for ourselves because we can only see in others what we have already seen in ourselves It acts as a mirror but that mirror does not show anything that is unknown to us as we become more mindful of ourselves and expand our knowledge about ourselves, then we will expand the knowledge about others. We can be mindful of our natural surroundings. We can see the craving to exist in trees and flowers and bushes. We can see birth and death in all nature around us. We can see how it Uh, there are living plants and dying plants. We can see the uh, craving in the animals around us, how they um, maybe kill other animals or crave to be fed. And we can always, as we see it, refer that to us, to ourselves, that there is not only a connection, but there's a total similarity all that exists has the same characteristics and the same elements now with that attention externally again we will learn also a lack a lessening of our separate separation no longer this isolation of each person and this isolation from person to natural surrounding, but we will feel integrated with it because we can see they're the same as we are. The tree has as much craving to exist as we have. It it grows and has this growing process and dying process just as we have. This um, internal and external mindfulness can be practiced under all circumstances, washing dishes, sitting in an office, sweeping a floor, pulling weeds in a garden, bringing up children, it doesn't matter what one does. Full attention to physical action, feeling, thinking and content of thinking. And by the same token, on the outer surroundings. There's one other aspect which goes together with mindfulness. And I I will mention it and uh, tell you about it. It's important. It's uh, because we won't see each other so much. I'm putting an awful lot all into 45 minutes. Um, It is called clear comprehension. And the Buddha always mentions it together with mindfulness. Not always, but very often. Sati sampanyanya. The two go together. Mindfulness is the knowing. Mindfulness is the pinpointed attention to what's actually happening. And clear comprehension is the evaluation. Now clear comprehension has four parts. And it is the evaluation of what we ourselves do. So the first step is to ascertain whether what one is going to say or do, what purpose it has. Now, if we do that in the first instance, a lot of our uh, talking will already be eliminated because we talk a lot without purpose. But we have to ascertain what purpose am I pursuing in this action or in this speech that I have in mind. Then the next thing is, to ascertain whether for the purpose I have in mind what I want to do is it's the most skillful means to get that purpose to accomplish that purpose am I using the most skillful means the next step is to ascertain whether those means are within the Dhamma within wholesomeness within righteousness the uh, end does not justify the means It never has and never will. We often try to think that way because it seems convenient, but it doesn't work. So the means have to be within the dhamma. And then if everything seems okay, then we go ahead and say or do, and in the end we find out, we inquire whether the purpose I had in mind was actually accomplished. And if not, why not? Obviously that slows one's reactions down. And uh, it slows down one's whole complex of uh, activity. Slowing down one's complex of activity is a very wholesome thing to do because it makes it possible to see what is important and what isn't. So many people are so caught up in so many activities that they can no longer figure out what is important and what isn't. It's just got to be done. But if we use this clear comprehension and check it as a guideline against that, what we're doing and what we're saying, and particularly how we're spending our day, then we will have a very uh, exact understanding whether we're using the time we have in this lifetime in the most profitable manner the lifetime is quite short even though when one is very young young it seems to be a long long time i know when when uh, teenagers when they're 12 they'd rather say they're already 13 and uh, because they can't wait. It seems such a long time. But as one grows older, one realizes one has very little time. And also, one has no guarantee that one is going to live till 60 or 70 or 80 years of age. Some people do and some don't. So actually, the only time we really have is each moment, each day and if we use this guideline of clear comprehension for each day we have a we have a certainty that we're using our time to the best advantage and with that certainty comes confidence and with that confidence comes a calm mind which can meditate the buddha said that We have to have comfort in body and mind. We have to be comfortable in body and mind in order to meditate. So we can't be um, having terrible pains in the body is not conducive to meditation naturally, but having pains in the mind is also not conducive to meditation. Although people who have pain in the mind sometimes come and meditate in order to get rid of the pain, but it doesn't quite work that way. It is much better if we can use our daily living in such a way that it is conducive to a spiritual growth and maturing and as we do that the mind will naturally become calm because it is confident that it is acting in its best interest and as it is doing that which has many aspects which are uh, doing things for others and many other things like that. As we do that, the meditation will pick up. And as the meditation will pick up, our mindfulness in everyday living will pick up. They, too, both have to help each other. Naturally, in the meditation, we try to be mindful because it is called that even, anapanasati, mindfulness of in-breath, out-breath. It means paying full attention. And if we can't stay on the breath, to pay full attention to the distractions, to the thinking. But as we do it in daily living, then naturally we have a much uh, greater advantage. It's much easier then to become concentrated and do it in the meditation. The two have to work together. If one is meditating and one doesn't find any change in one's reaction in daily living, the meditation hasn't really taken hold. There has to be some sort of change in one. It may not be noticeable to other people. We need not use the judgment of other people. We only need to look at ourselves with mindfulness. And then I was asked what I was going to talk about, Helen wrote me a letter. Um, I quickly answered and said, oh, seven factors of enlightenment, because it seemed like I had to give seven talks, so it seemed to fit very well. And I will talk about them, but not in exactly the way they are usually traditionally in their order, nor as they're usually and traditionally looked upon. I will talk about them from a standpoint of a meditator because they do are, they are, and they do talk about meditation. They are actually one looks at the seven factors of enlightenment they are actually um, can be divided into two calm and insight which are the factors of the meditation. So I'd like to talk about particularly that aspect which is samatha, calm to give an idea what this is all about and how we can reach a deep understanding which will be helpful to us. I like to call it, and I'm not unique in that aspect, a change of consciousness. And in this case, consciousness, awareness, what we are aware of, how we perceive. Now, we all know the ordinary consciousness that we run around with every day, that we have to catch a bus and go to work and go shopping and uh, get worried whether we're going to be late Mm -hmm. and uh, dislike when people do not uh, comply with our wishes and that kind of consciousness is well known to everybody and we are probably moved to practice some spiritual path because that particular consciousness is not not very um, satisfactory it doesn't give any great contentment, it doesn't give any joy. It's a kind of um, utilitarian consciousness with which we have to do our duties and responsibilities which we sometimes think are overriding everything else. Then of course we do know a different consciousness. For instance, when one falls in love, that's a different consciousness hope everybody's done it once or twice so they know exactly what I'm saying. Then there's a different consciousness when one has a new baby, particularly for the mother. There's a different feeling. One also can easily have a different consciousness, different awareness and perception when one comes tonight to a place like this and has confidence in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and takes precept and refuge. It's possible for those who have deep confidence. Because then the daily cares and the daily concerns are left behind for those moments, and the mind directs itself towards something which has an ideal and a spiritual qualification within. And one feels already a little uplifted. One has a different kind of perception when one does something very generous and uh, makes other people happy. And one sees the happiness maybe in their faces. There's a different feeling within oneself, a different awareness. These are all changes of consciousness, they are known to us, but uh, we can't fall in love every day, it's impossible, it would be rather disturbing, we can't have a new baby every day either, and uh, we can't come here and wait for it to sit here and be uplifted, so we need to do something a little more um, independent something that is less dependent upon outer conditions, and something that is a little more um, remaining within when we put our attention on it. So that we can move away from that which is typical for human beings, namely the value judgments, the likes and dislikes, the cares and concerns, the fears and anxiety, and the hopes and the memories and come into contact and in touch with something within us which we subconsciously or even consciously already know is there and that most people do not get a chance to get in touch with not because they haven't got it not because they can't do it but because they haven't been shown how we all have it naturally. Otherwise what would be the use of meditation? And also we have something even greater than that. We all have the seed of enlightenment within. Because if we didn't, the Buddha would have wasted the 45 years of his life when he was teaching. If the seed of enlightenment wasn't there, he could have stayed under the Bodhi tree in nibbanic bliss and never paid any attention to suffering mankind. But because we have that seed within us, it is our opportunity, it is our potential and it is to our great advantage to get a little nearer to that which has this consciousness which is directed towards this great light. Enlightenment in English has the word light in it, but it is not a physical light. It is a spiritual lightening up where the dust or the obstructions that we carry around with us are discarded. The thus the obstructions that we carry around with us are caused by our thinking. It's as plain and easy as that. Now that doesn't mean that a person who is enlightened no longer thinks but it means that we must be able to get a chance to get at a state of mind within which has Nothing to do with thinking, but has to do with having an inner vision. The Buddha called it the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Now, knowledge is knowing, and vision is an inner seeing. I call it the understood experience if we have an experience but we don't understand what it is it doesn't do us any good at all and we cannot repeat it and we will have no benefit from it in fact often people will say oh i can't describe it well if one can't describe it obviously one doesn't know it if i know melbourne i can describe it but i don't happen to know melbourne but whatever one knows one can describe made in ever so poor language so we have there, we have the guidelines of the Buddha for which in the first instance a great deal of gratitude can arise in one's heart which is already an opening and a change of consciousness the Buddha said to find a person who will do a kindness and one who will be grateful for it, is one of the three rarities. So gratitude is a rare characteristic and quality in people. So if we can bring that up within ourselves, the gratitude that there is a guideline, there's an absolute direct guideline how to do it and how to understand it, then we are opening our heart already to a way of feeling, a way of being, which is divorced from fear and care and hope and anxiety and like and dislike. Then, as we do that and have a a possibility for meditation practice, it is not so difficult to come to a state of concentration in meditation where the thinking is no longer happening. Most people can reach a state of being concentrated on a meditation subject for some time without too great difficulties. In the beginning it seems very difficult but after some time it is quite possible. Now when this happens that it is no longer necessary to have the thinking of the mind going on back and forth, we come to a state of purity. And the mind doesn't think. It goes back to its original quality of purity. A mind that doesn't think experiences. Don't think that this is a blank mind a blank mind would be a mind which has degenerated to being what we call a vegetable it's not blank it is it is a mind which is experiencing what is happening and this experience that the mind has is getting back to its, or down to its, original nature. Original nature of the mind is purity. When we experience that even for half a second, or even less than half a second, we have a personal entry into knowing that there is the possibility within us to have a different kind of consciousness. And at that moment, we will first of all be quite eager to meditate, which most people who have not had that experience are not, understandably so, because it's inconvenient and uncomfortable and takes time. And not only that, but we get a glimpse of a different reality. And this is what the change of consciousness is all about. The reality in which we live, in which everybody is a single separate person and concerned with his or her daily affairs and with his or her advantages, or disadvantages, that reality is never satisfying and it's a kind of reality in which all wars are being fought. If we can't get what we want, we obviously have to get angry. And if we get what we don't want, we also have to get angry if there is no different reality available to us. Now, nobody gets all they want in life because we always want things which are entirely nonsensical also. And everybody sometimes has things and gets things they don't want. But if that's our only reality, we cannot have peace within. And if we can't have peace within, there's no reason to expect peace without. It goes together, the two belong together. But if in meditation, and mind you, sometimes people do experience that even without meditation for just a moment. But in meditation, we can do it in a organized and orderly manner where we can repeat it at will. And when in meditation, we come to a point where we can experience the mind in a different reality, One where there is nothing to disturb the mind. Absolutely nothing. The only thing there is at the time is well-being. The only thing that we can experience is joy and eventually also a deep inner peace. When we come to that, the first thing that we must realize from that and everybody does is this is a much more desirable and much greater happiness and peace than we have ever been able to get through worldly conditions. And we're therefore, when it happens for the first time, quite overwhelmed and also convinced that our real happiness lies within us and not outside of us. We will no longer give the same kind of priority, importance to the outer conditions because we must have tried long enough already to make them fit our desires and they hardly ever do. There's always something that goes wrong. They just won't fit our desires, primarily also because our desires change but also because the conditions change. And not only that, but there's more. The outer conditions are dependent upon our sense contacts. They depend upon our seeing something, hearing something, tasting something, touching, smelling and thinking. And because of that, and because when the mind is not trained in the thinking process, We are dependent upon the conditions outside of us to be so that they will make us happy. We are therefore in a dependency status and cannot ever feel free of that particular bondage. And because it never will, this bondage, will never comply completely with our desires at all times, we will always fall from the contentment to the discontentment and back and forth. I like to compare it with sitting on a seesaw up and down and some people go very high up and bump down even, also very far down because the higher one goes the better one falls And some people have a capacity to stay a little more on the fulcrum, a little more in the middle. But it is a constant seesaw movement. And the dependency syndrome which arises because of this and which everybody is um, subject to is one which creates also anxiety, constant anxiety, which is so well known to us that we don't notice it. It's only really um, better mindfulness which brings it uh, to the fore. The anxiety state that we're in, that things will work out the way we want them to work out. (coughs) Because of this also, we are in a state of living in the future. The moment, this particular moment, is not satisfactory to us. The past, of course, is completely gone, we can't do anything about it, so we're hoping that the future will be better, because the moment that we're in is not good, or not good enough. It may not be bad, but it's not good enough. It doesn't fulfill their heart's desire of complete and utter peace and happiness. Living in the future, even if it is the next moment, or tomorrow, or this evening, is also A dream world, because tomorrow never comes. When it comes, it's called today. The future can never arise. When it arises, it's the present. So we're living in a dream world in which there is no total satisfaction, in which we're always grabbing or grasping for something new and other than what we've had, because what we've had hasn't done it. Now when we have our first glimpse through concentration in meditation of a different reality where there is total satisfaction possible without having to see it, to hear it, to smell it, to taste it, to touch it, or to think it, naturally we're finding ourselves on a different level of consciousness, even if it is only for half a minute, half a second. Having done that for half a second, naturally we will try to pull on it. When we are able to do that and find ourselves through the meditative uh, procedure in a state where the concentration is absorbed, we realize that our peace and happiness, which is what every living being wants, and should want, lies within us, has absolutely nothing to do with outer conditions. It cannot arise through outer conditions. It cannot be given to us, and has to be attained by us. And it isn't such a difficult thing to attain, but one does need patience, determination, perseverance and energy energy is also one of the seven factors of enlightenment and the concentration is one of the seven factors of enlightenment these are factors which eventually when perfected will lead to enlightenment but at this stage in our lives where we may not even think of enlightenment we can look upon them as factors which are available to us because they are part of us which we can perfect and cultivate in order to have a basis of living which is not dependent upon the conditions of other people the weather, the government, the um, job they are not dependent upon the world But they depend upon concentration. Now if we are only dependent upon our own concentration, obviously we have jurisdiction over our own happiness. And when we have jurisdiction over our own happiness, we become master of our own household. Until we do that, we are slaves of the senses. Now, to be a slave is obviously not a very satisfactory situation to be in. So, to become master of, the, of one's own inner household is a step in the direction where we can see a little clearer what peace and happiness really are. So, when through the meditative um, absorption we have the ability, even if it is only for a short time, to have this joy and eventually contentment and then peacefulness. We learn also from that something which is extremely important, namely that such things, such states of mind are only possible when the ego, the me, is let go for the time of attaining those states if one should have some happiness in the meditation gaining this joy and then the mind says oh I'm so joyful the whole thing is finished the non-thinking of the mind means non-ego because only when we are thinking do we have an ego support so if we're able to let go through our concentration efforts of this ego delusion for the time of the concentration i'm not talking about letting go of it forever because that takes a little more than that but just for the time of the concentration letting go of that ego delusion we will see from that quite clearly from our own experience that there's no other troublemaker in the whole world except this me and mind making. Until then, we may believe it, we may argue it, we may philosophize about it, we may psychologize it, whatever we want to do, but we don't know what it's all about. But then we do know. We've experienced it. We've experienced that the dropping of it, because there's no other way to concentrate except letting it go, means that that deep inner joy can arise. And from that we have gained a foothold in the essence of the Buddha's teaching. Now those are footholds which we gain, on which we can base then our... um, investigation another thing which this uh, brings about is the fact although we can't take the concentrated state with us the mind knows that it has something it can fall back on no matter what happens in the world It may be very unfortunate things happening. It may be happening unfortunate things to us. There may be a lot of uh, dissatisfaction, hassles and stress. But the mind no longer reacts in the old way because it no longer believes that getting rid of those hassles and that stress is going to make all the difference. Because we know that we've got rid of other hassles and stress and it didn't make all the difference. There are others, and no new ones come about. This time the mind knows that the only thing that makes any difference is to get concentrated again and have again the arising of the joy and the peace. And therefore, all the difficulties which one has in life, minor or major, are no longer considered to be an obstruction to happiness. They are only considered to be some challenge that one has to work with. So we have a direct experience of the reality where happiness comes from and where peace comes from. We have a direct experience of the reality that without the ego delusion, this happiness and peace can arise. And we also have a direct experience of impermanence. Now, this is not the only way we can experience impermanence and non-self, but it certainly is a very um, apt way, a skillful way. When our concentration wavers, which in most people it does after, well, let's say 10 minutes or so, and this joy and happiness has again disappeared, we can see that that which we really wanted that which is so pleasant also is impermanent if our dukkha anybody know what dukkha is yes good (laughs) if that is impermanent then we're quite happy that's great let it be really impermanent. But when our sukha, that which we enjoy, is impermanent, then we think that's dukkha. And this is correct. That is why sukha, that which is pleasant, is also dukkha, because we can't keep it. And unless we have the meditative experience Where this is really known and seen, we might never believe it. Or we might say yes, yes, but it doesn't mean anything. And this is the uh, injunction of the Buddha, not to believe anything he says, but to try it out, to give it enough benefit of the doubt to try it out and then verify it for oneself. Now, if we verify for ourselves that this pleasantness that has arisen, that which we really wanted, has already disappeared and is therefore, just as impermanent as everything else, we may get an inkling of the fact what it means not to crave for existence. Because this is probably the most difficult aspect for all human beings to make a change in that craving for existence, which is our wish for survival, to an understanding that all existing is Dukkha. Now it's a long step between seeing one's happiness disappear in meditation and letting go of the craving for existence but we've got to start somewhere. This is the best possible point to start because it is so obvious. It is so obviously true and right. There we got what we were looking for. We got some peace and happiness just by sitting down and closing our eyes. And then, bingo, gone it is. And we're right back where we were when we started except for the fact that we have learned all those things that I have mentioned. We have learned the non-self has to be a reality at those times, that it's changeable, that there's no permanence to it, and that the mind, if it's done properly, taught and practiced rightly, can do it again and again. Now, that is not the only change of consciousness, not only joy and happiness, is, a, is the only possibility of change of consciousness. As a change of consciousness which brings about the peacefulness which is coupled with equanimity. Now equanimity is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It is the highest possible emotion we can have. And I'll talk about it another time with in more detail but by the rising of that equanimity in the meditative process we get an idea again what it means to have equanimity in daily life and we can see that it is different from not getting excited it has a different quality about it it has a quality of Subjectivity is gone. That's mine. (laughs) (laughs) The subjectivity that we have as a stance towards all the things and all the people is gone at that time. And we are reaching towards unity. And because that state of mind at that time in the meditation reaches towards unity, we can gain access to states of mind that are space and consciousness infinite. Now, the words themselves are meaningless, but the experience is one where we are no longer under the illusion that we are a totally separate being, totally separate in mind and body, limited by the space which we occupy and limited by our thinking capacity. In our ordinary consciousness, obviously we are. We are limited by the space that we occupy and we are limited by what we can think about, and what we do think about. But this is not a satisfactory way of being, because we feel that we are threatened by other beings. And we have that even in our language, I'm feeling threatened. We feel threatened because we have made borders around us. And just like the borders of any country are being defended against all these enemies that are supposedly coming in, in the same way we do it too and it isn't that it is happening in the countries and that's why we're doing it it's because we're doing it that's why it's happening in all the countries because we are the countries each one of us is part of a country where this is happening these are our borders and they are our views and opinions as far as our mind is concerned and um, our ego affirmation and identification, and the physical borders of this body. Now, this we call me and mine. And as we are concerned with keeping it intact, naturally, which is our craving for existence, we consider anyone who doesn't support that as a potential enemy. And although we don't say that, We act it out. We very often, practically all the time, resent and reject others who are apparently coming into our space. Just like countries resent and reject and fight others who come into their airspace or who come into their territorial waters or into their territory. And wherever we look, and have been looking for the past 50 years or so, we can see war on a grand or medium scale. And this war is generated because of our separation from each other. And this war we also generate within us because of our separation from each other, It is very difficult for an ordinary consciousness to see or to feel complete unity with other beings, especially those we don't particularly like. The remedy is the meditative experience of infinity of space and consciousness because the borders of the body are totally dissolved in that experience of space and the borders of our mind are totally dissolved in that experience of infinity of consciousness and what we experience is nothing but a consciousness a space which doesn't have particularly personalities in it particularly not our own and from that experience we can never again emerge as the same as we were before even though the change is slow and it is um, tedious but it can never can one be the same again because one has seen that the reality in which we apparently live this relative reality of you and me and them and us is just as much a delusion as the idea that i can get happiness and satisfaction from my senses from outer conditions and these experiences and i will at another time um delineate them a little more detailed if uh, people want me to these experiences are the inborn factors that we have within we do not have to um, make them come alive as something entirely new we all have that all we have to do is cultivate develop and uh, realize that this is a priority in life not to do it just when one has a little extra time or when a teacher comes around and says come on sit down do some meditation but to realize that this changes one's life to such an extent that one can never be the same again and can never have the same kinds of concerns again that the world as we see it in our ordinary consciousness is so limited and so distorted that the unpleasantness which uh, is uh, a factor in our world, is a natural outcome of that. The wars and the quarrels and the arguments and the dislikes and the lack of love and the lack of unity are, are natural outcomes of our distortion of you. And again and again, we see people trying to do the opposite, to try to be together with others, help, be generous, uh, love others, and yet it remains always in most people not in everyone but in most people a constant trying and endeavor which is right which is very good but if through the meditative process the reality has been seen then that trying is no longer necessary because the whole view of the world has changed the whole view of oneself has changed and as that has changed one can compare it maybe with a child that goes to first grade in school and is shown books that they have to learn to read and have to learn to write. And a person who has just graduated from university and it has also books. There's a different world in those books. They're still books, but they're a different world. The person who has seen Through the meditative process, this different world is still a person. It's still not enlightened, but there's a different world to see. And that (coughs) brings one into the pathway of gaining more and more an insight into what there really is rather than what we think there is. I'd like to give you an opportunity to ask some questions if you like.